Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you care for us. We thank you for your word. We ask your spirit to guide and lead us as we look at your word and see what you would have us to see and, and learn what you want us to learn from this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 31, we're going to see the transition of authority and power moving from Moses to Joshua in this chapter. 32 sees a, a final song that was created by Moses. Then we see Moses being taken away to Mount Eber. And then we see the last statement where uh, Joshua is elevated in people's sight. So those are the last four chapters in a nutshell. We're all done. Now we're ready to go to... No. <laughs> Next. <laughs> Next. <laughs> Chapter 31, verse 1. Moses went and spoke these words unto all Israel. And he said unto them, I am 120 years old this day. I can no more go out and go in. Also the Lord has said to me, You shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God, he will go over before you. He will destroy those nations from before you, and you shall possess them. And Joshua, he shall go before you, as the Lord has said. And the Lord shall do to them as he did to Sihon and to Og, kings of the Amorites, and unto the land of them whom he has destroyed. And the Lord shall give them up before your face, that you may do unto them according to all the commandments which I have commanded unto you. Be strong and of good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he it is that does go with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. So we're going to look at this. Uh, we're seeing Moses tying up all the loose ends as he's going to the, talking to the people. And he says that he's a very young, 120 years old. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, it's kind of interesting here. He says, I can't go in and come out. And yet in the New Testament, uh, the testimony from Paul is that he hadn't lost any of his strength or his eyesight. So I think uh, there's a little bit of confusion here. I think he's feeling the age. It's not showing as much. But I think he's coming, you know, I'm, I, I'm not as strong as I used to be. And Moses' life is 120 years old. It breaks up really easy. He spends 40 years learning to run a country in, in Egypt as the prince of Egypt. He spends 40 years in the backside of the desert learning to be humble. Then he spends 40 years leading the Israelite people in the, in the wilderness wanderings. So that's how his life breaks down. Okay, when, and when, if you remember way back in Exodus when he says, you know, God, I'm not, I'm not able to lead these people. You know, he was very foolish when he said that because God had, taught, had spent 40 years teaching him to run the number one country of the world at the time, Egypt. And then he goes and goes, God, I'm just not able to do this. Uh, he had gone so far from being proud to so far down the hum humility road that he started getting into this false humility saying, no, I can't. I can't do what you're asking me to do, God. Even though I'm trained to do it, I can't go do it. And sometimes we do the same thing with God. You know, God, I just can't do it. I know that you've trained me. I know you've prepared me, but I just can't or I won't do what you want me to do. And uh, this is something that people do all the time. And if you've ever tried to recruit people in a church to help out, you'll hear it all the time. You can see that they've been, that they're ready to go and you know that they're able to do it and they're going, no, nope, can't do it, won't do it, you know, not, don't have enough time, whatever, whatever excuses that they'll come up with, they'll come up with just as Moses had done with God. God, I'm not qualified. I'm not eloquent of speech. I, I, I'm not this, I'm not that. I'm, and God had to turn and, and say no. You have been prepared. And, you know, sometimes it's a matter of just stepping out and doing and saying, God says, I want you to do this. You know, okay, God, I don't think I can do this, but I will, 
go and step out and do what you want me to do. And that's scary sometimes. And yet, when you do it and God works through you, it's a wonderful thing. And Moses is saying, you know, hey, I've been, do, I've been leading, I've been around for 120 years. And that's a pretty good length of time for, for this period of, of their existence. Uh, and we see, you know, we see the same thing when uh, Jacob comes into, Israel, into Egypt. He tells, he tells Pharaoh, I'm 180, 18 years old and, and my, my life has been short and hard. <laughs> and the Egyptians didn't live to be that long in, in, for most part. You know, and he's looking at him saying, you're, you're that old? And he's going to live to be 127, I think it was. Uh, but we see that the blessings of God give long life in many cases and give a sweet life to people when they turn their life over to God. And it says... He's been told that he shall not go over the Jordan. And we've been talking about this. The reason he's not going over the Jordan is because God told him to speak to the rock to get water from it. And if you remember, he lost his temper with the people and struck the rock. God was gracious enough to go ahead and give them water anyway. But he told Moses, you aren't going to go into the promised land. You, you have violated, basically he messed up a picture of Christ. Because Christ was the stone, the rock that gave out water. And he was only struck one time on the cross and he was supposed to speak to him. And from that point on, Moses kept blaming the people. It's your fault that I'm not going into the promised land. And I think that the whole reason he didn't go into the promised land is because he never repented of his anger issues. Yeah, that was my question. If he, and I use the word obeyed, if he obeyed God, if he'd obeyed God, then God wouldn't have told him you're not going into the promised land. Even after it happened. I believe that if he had repented, God would have forgiven him and might have let him go into the promised land. But he never did, he never did repent. And you see this in his language. It's your fault. It's your fault. You're the reason I'm not going into the promised land. So he never, he never took responsibility for his own anger and asked God's forgiveness. He always blamed somebody else and that's a problem in all of our lives if we don't ask for forgiveness of a sin between God and possibly whoever it might be it will block our fellowship with God to the point that it may affect our work with him because we are to confess our sins to one another and to God specifically but also you know Moses should have said you know you guys got me mad but it's my fault that I got mad God please forgive me and I, I personally believe that he would have gone in. Now, my personal belief is worth what it is, nothing. <laughs> it's just I believe that God would have let him go in and, and let him be the leader if he had repented. But the people of Israel did not repent. He did not repent, and he got judged for that lack of repentance. And uh, we see this, that he says, I'm not going over. And then it says, because you can just picture this, he has been the leader of the people for 40 years. Okay, food has been provided, water has been provided, quail have been provided, victories over their enemies have been provided, and now all of a sudden the leader from the last 40 years, who's a very loved leader, even though they rebel and chastise and chafe at him, is telling you, I'm not going in. Can you picture the sadness in their hearts? Okay, what's going to happen? How are we going to survive? Our leader is not going across the, the Jordan. We, we in America really don't understand that because we change leaders every four years, you know, four to eight years with no problem and, and don't have this real tie. But if you think back to the founding of our country, George Washington, 
whom everybody loved and was ready to make a king. Okay, they were ready to make him king of America. And he's going, no, you're not, I'm, not, I'm stepping down. But people were wondering whether the United States could handle losing George Washington in that, in that day, in that period. This is why dictatorships form and usually are very popular when they form. The people are very popular. When, when uh, Hitler took power, he was elected chancellor by a huge landslide and then just never left office. Then the people liked him. He was very charismatic. He was very, very uh, uh, outgoing and people loved him until he started going crazy. <laughs> And even then, they were going, okay, he must have a reason for this because of how outgoing it, he was. And here we see Moses telling the people, you're going to go on. And in verse 3, he starts his encouraging them. The Lord your God, he will go over with you. And he will destroy the nations from before you. And you shall possess them. Okay, so he's going basically, I am not the power that has led you into victory. It has been God. And he has said this for 40 years. It's been stand and see what God will do. When he stood in front of the Red Sea, it's stand and see what God shall do to deliver you as the Red Sea split. When he struck the rock, he goes, see what God will do. And yet the people kept looking to Moses as somehow the power behind all these miracles. It was somehow Moses had the power, not God, even though he kept pointing to God. He keeps pointing to God and people keep looking at, at Moses. And you know, this still happens to this day. You get to church where you get a good, strong leader who's preaching the word of God and, and doing, and not, not wanting to be lifted up and elevated. I think of guys like Chuck Smith who kind of got elevated in his church and people, almost there was a group of people that idolized him rather than looking to God, even though he kept pointing them to God. And there's lots of churches where this happens, where a strong leader comes up and they preach their heart out and people grow and they start, instead of looking to God, they look at the leader. And the leader, the good leader keeps pointing them to God, pointing them to God, pointing them to God. And Moses was doing this all the way through. He keeps pointing to God and they keep looking at him. Okay, Moses, what are you going to do to get us out of this mess? What, Moses, what are you going to do? Moses, it's all your fault that we're out here. You know, we're not following God. We're following you. And this is something we have to be very careful of, even ourselves, when we have a teacher that we really like, that we don't lift that teacher up so high that we start idolizing that teacher. And it's pretty easy to do if it's a good teacher. And you're growing under that teacher. It's pretty easy to look to that teacher and say, there's something special about that person. It's not necessarily the God in them that you start focusing on. And I've seen it in, in more than one church. I've seen it. I grew up in a church where that had happened with, with a lot of people. They idolized the pastor and, you know, lifted him way up, you know, and, and he kept pointing people to God. As far as I know, he pointed everybody to God. But people started idolizing him. And we need to be very careful that we don't do that. We always keep our mind and eyes focused on God, even as we're following the man. And Paul said, it, you know, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow the Christ in me is what he was saying. But we see him saying, you know, some of you are saying you're of Paul, some of Cephas, some of Apollos. But, you know, and some are really spiritual and they're saying, I only follow Christ. You know, but, but he's saying you need to be looking to God. And we see this, and here's Moses saying, you still, 
I may be out of the picture, but the one who's the real power is still going with you. Keep your eyes focused on him. And then it says, in Joshua, he shall go over before you as the Lord had said. So here is the straightforward transition of power. Joshua has been being raised up in their sight. He has been the general that's gone out to battle for them. For 40 years, he's been the general. He was one of the spies that went out. He was one of the righteous ones that said, hey, this is, God will give us this land. All we got to do is go and God's going to give it to us. And so Joshua has been being lifted up. And to have any stoppage of any kind of power struggle, God is saying, uh, Moses, you let them know that Joshua is the next leader. You know, Joshua is the next leader because usually when a good, strong leader dies or quits or whatever it might be, there's usually some kind of power struggle. Even in a church, we see these kind of things happen where a strong leader of a church for a long period of time fall, you know, you know, retires or dies suddenly. Oftentimes, there's a little bit of a power struggle on which of the pastors underneath are going to take over or will it be one of his kids and... And we see this over and over. And we see it in the scriptures quite frequently. That there's a little bit of struggle. Who's going who's to lead next? And here God's saying, I'm going to solve this for you right now. Moses, you tell him Joshua's leading. God picked the next leader for them. And very important on this. And then it says in verse 4, And the Lord shall do unto them as he did to Sihon and to Og, kings of the Amorites, and into the land of them whom he has destroyed. And if you remember... When they were coming up around the east side of the Jordan, the first two nations that came up up against the Ammonites and the the Edomites, God says, you're not going to touch them because they're family. Okay? Kind of long-distance family. They came from Lot's Lot's, uh, incestuous relationship with his two daughters, which led, led to those nations being developed. But they were still family. And he says, you're not going to destroy those they're them because their family I will take care of, but God did promise he would take care of them later because they weren't following but he says you're not to touch them Edomites are lots I thought that they were Esau um, you might be right you might be right but anyway they're all, they're all we got lots we got Esau we got everybody down there in that section so you might be right I, I always mix up the Edomites with uh, the other group that is the other son Moabites. So we see them saying, no, you can't attack these. You can't attack these people. But then they get into the Amorites and they come out to fight them with a war. With the war, they ask for permission to go through. And if you remember in Deuteronomy, they come out to fight them. And God says, you can take them. <laughs> you, get to, you get to fight and take them. This, this is your land. And, and they take them. And they wipe them out through God's victory. And if you remember, on the east side of the Jordan, in the land of the Amorites, and the north country just north of that, is going to settle uh, the half tribe of Manasseh and the uh, Ephraimites. There's two and a half tribes that are going to live on the east side of the Jordan. And they're always going to be the first ones to be wiped out. Every time Israel gets into trouble, they're on the wrong side of the Jordan, and they, get, they keep getting beat up all the time. <laughs> But they stayed there because it was good land for, for their cattle. And remember, Moses was told to them, you guys can stay, but all your men of war have to go into the promised land until the land is conquered, and then you'll be released to return to your families. 
your families, your, your children, your wives, and your cattle can stay on the east side of the Jordan, but your fighting army has to go in with the people. And so we're going to see that being upheld in the next book. <laughs> and the Lord shall give them up before your face, and you may do them according to all the commandments which I have commanded you. So he says you're going to be victorious. Why? Not because it's Moses being directing it, because God is your leader. And this has been Moses pointing to God all along. All along. For 40 years he keeps pointing to God, and for 40 years the people keep looking at him. And whenever there's trouble, Moses, what are you going to do about this? And Moses would go to the tabernacle or fall on his face and start worshiping God and get an answer from God because he knew who the real authority was. But the people kept going to Moses. It, you know, and they had the perfect capability of going to God. They've always been able to go to God themselves, but they keep going to Moses. Moses, what are you going to do about this? Verse 6 be strong and of good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them, for the Lord your God, be it, be it is that does go with you, and he shall not fail you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage. This is the statement of this chapter. Be strong and of good courage. It's going to go all the way into the book of Joshua. Be strong and be of good courage. We as Christians need to be strong and of good courage. Why? Because our God goes before us. He will not fail us. He will not forsake us. He goes before us. All we have to do is follow him. And this is, I keep hammering away at this over many, many times. God is the one who knows everything. He doesn't let anything happen that he's not aware of. He has a plan for everything that goes on in our life. And the more we hold on to that, the stronger we can be with him and the more courageous we can be because we look at it and say, my God is in charge. He is victorious. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing can separate me from his plan because he is God. Be strong and of good courage. Do not wimp out. Most of us wimp out so often when God says, do something. Well, God, I just don't know. I don't know if I have the right words. I don't know if I have enough strength. I don't know if I'm smart enough. I don't know. Whatever excuses we use, God, they might make fun of me if I say something about you. We have all kinds of excuses for our lack of courage and trust and, and, and you know, strength in God. And, you know, it is really sad that many Christians are cowardly wimps. They re we really are in many times. And you think about Moses. You know, can you imagine how much courage it took for Moses to go in front of Pharaoh? Number one, he's wanted for murder. Joshua is going to lead the people, rebellious people. It was okay when he was general and he was commander of the army. But now he's going to lead this rebellious people. And we're going to see him in the beginning of Joshua looking out and saying, you know, basically going, God, how can I do this? I'm not strong enough to do this. And that's when he meets the angel of the Lord. We see people like Jeremiah who says, I'm not speaking for you, God, anymore, because every time I speak, I, something bad happens to me. And, God said, and then he says, his word burned in my mouth and I couldn't but help to speak. You know, we see it over and over again. We see Peter you know, God, I will stand for you. If everybody else will leave you, I won't leave you. 
And he goes out to prove it. He chops the ear off of a servant of the, of the arresting officers. He's ready to fight. He's ready to die to keep Jesus from being arrested. And he says, put your sword away, Peter. And then he goes to the other extreme and becomes a total coward and he denies Jesus in front of women in the court. Especially the very last one, a little girl. No, I never knew him as he starts cursing. And the cop crows. And he looks at Jesus and realizes how far he's fallen. You know, how much courage do we have? And if we try to do it in ourselves, it doesn't work. It has to be courage and faithfulness and strength in God. And God will honor that stepping out. He, he does great things for us. But it says, it is he. And Moses is pointing, you can be strong and of good courage because it is God that goes with you. And we always have to remember, it is God who goes with us. It's not my strength. It's not me who does anything. It's not you and your strength. It's God in you that pours out as long as we allow him to do it. And we see this over and over in the scriptures that we watch God working through people. Verse 7, And Moses called unto Joshua and said unto him, In the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to, unto their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, if he it is that does go with you, he will be with you, and he will not fail you, neither forsake you. Fear not, neither be dismayed. And this is the direct charge to Joshua. Same thing he's telling the people. Be strong and of good courage because God will not leave you. He's going to go with you. He is going to be the one that gives you the victories. Do not be dismayed. And we see that Joshua has been pretty strong for God. He has been at Moses' side for 40 years. He has been beside Moses when the people have rebelled and he's gone with Moses to the tabernacle to worship before God, to hear God. He is with Moses. He has been a very good pupil and disciple. Where Moses goes, you find Joshua. He goes wherever he's at. Very similar to where Paul goes, you find Timothy and Titus, unless he sends them out to do something. They will always come back to where he is because he is their discipler. He is their training. When Jesus walked this world, the 12 disciples were with him all the time. We need to have somebody in our life that is our discipler that we look at and say, when this happens, how does my, how does my example act? How does my example get through this? The disciples had the best example of all. They had Jesus. Okay? But they were with them all the time. When the lame man showed up in his presence, they saw which, the compassion Jesus had on him. When the lepers came and needed heal, they saw the compassion. When they saw the scribes and Pharisees come and give him a hard time, they saw how he dealt with them. They were able to watch him and everything that he did. Joshua hung out with Moses the whole time. We see in Samuel, he, held, he is with Eli, watching Eli trying to be a good servant of God. Because Eli was a good servant of God. He was a terrible father, but he was a good servant of God. But God judged him for his lack of ability as a father. And, but Samuel watches him. He learns how to be a man of God by watching Eli. Elisha spends all of his time with Elijah and says, I want to know how to be a mighty prophet of God. And then 
when Elijah's being taken away, he goes, I want a double portion of, of what you have. I want to be everything you are plus. I want to do what you've done and I want to do it even greater. We see this over and over in the scriptures, how people have had various individuals that they have trained. In our early church fathers in the first century, they were trained by John and Peter and, and these guys, and they traced their roots back to the original, original disciples, and then they trained disciples who carried on the truth. And, and we see this pattern that has gone on for, for millennia in the, in, the, in the church. You take somebody under your arm, you teach them how to, how to study the scriptures, how to understand the scriptures so that they carry on what you, have, what you have taught. We see it in many families where God has reigned in the family and the father teaches his children who teach their children, who teach their children. And each generation moves forward with God because they're standing on the shoulders of the previous generation because they're not starting at the beginning. They get to start at a higher level because that's what their family expects. Now we also see that sometimes you get one that goes off the wrong direction. So we, you know, it's not a guarantee. If you raise your kids up in the, in the truths of God, there's not an automatic guarantee that they're going to grow up that way. They may go off in their own direction. Sometimes it's our fault because we don't do it as good a job as we should. We don't keep them focused in the church. We don't focus on the Bible as much as we should, whatever it might be. But, you know, we do the best we can, and we can't blame ourselves for anything going wrong with our kids because we do the best we can. I've always said God's really not fair to us. He gives us kids when we're young and stupid so that we can make lots of mistakes, and then when we get to be grandparents and older with them, we can, we can walk with God with our grandkids. <laughs> and, but we see over and over the mistakes we make as a young person. And then they're gonna, our mistakes can get even larger, but we also make lots of good moves in many cases. We take our kids to church. We teach them the word of God. We, we educate them in God's truth. And I've said, you know, one of the greatest things was that my dad would be reading the Bible and praying. And I hope my kids saw that in me, that I wanted to read God's word and pray, at least once I stopped being a workaholic and spent time with them. Uh, but we, we see this, and here we see jo Joshua being commended by Moses personally, saying, you're the next leader. You are the next leader. David will do that when Solomon takes over because his brothers are already jockeying for position when Dave, as David's getting older. And he makes Solomon a co-regent with him before he dies to establish, I have picked the next king and it's going to be Sam, uh, Solomon. And, and he picked it and he kind of nipped everything else in the bud because everybody's else like, okay, you know, dad's picked <laughs> Dad's picked it. He's put the generals under him. He's aligned all the, the, the court and the counselors under him and kind of chopped them off at the knees as they were trying to arrange. And you saw the kingdoms being built up. You know, they were sitting there ready to fight over this. And it was arranged that says, no, Solomon is the next. And it's very good and very wise for a leader to pick their next, their su successor, as long as they pick a godly successor. Verse 9, and Moses wrote this law and delivered unto the priests, the sons of Levi, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord and unto the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, at the end of the, every seven years, in a solemn, in the solemnity of the year of release, in the feast of the tabernacles, when all of Israel has come to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he shall choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. 
Gather the people together, men, women, and children, and your strangers that are within your gate, that they may hear, and that they may learn and fear the Lord your God, and observe to do all the words of this law, and that their children, which have not known anything, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land where you go over the Jordan to possess it. So Moses writes out the law. The first five books of the Bible, sometimes called the Pentateuch. If you read an older version of the Bible, they are called the first book of Moses, second book of Moses, third book of Moses, fourth book of Moses, and fifth book of Moses. They don't have the names that, that we're used to uh, in them. The words and the teaching and his leadership. Yeah, you can say that. And he is revered even today as one of the great leaders of Israel. So, and it says, at the end of every seven years, you will have a solemn year of release in the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is a fall festival. And the, the year of Jubilee or the year of release happens at that time. Every seven years, if you remember, in Exodus 23.11, Leviticus 25.4, Deuteronomy 15.1, it all talks about the year of release. Every seven years you released the slaves from their, from their servitude and returned them back. So that they could never totally sell themselves for perpetuity. Now, if they liked their master, they could become a bond slave. And we've talked about a bond slave. And that was somebody saying, you know, you've been a really good master. I really mess up my life every time I, I get out on my own. I just want to be your servant from now on. And then they would drive an awl through their ear, create a hole, and put an earring in it. And it would show that that person was a chosen slave to, to be a chosen servant of that individual. And... Uh, and then they would, they would be perpetually in the service of that house. But it was a chosen thing. And this is the term that Paul and Peter and John used to describe themselves. We are bond slaves of Christ, referring back to this. We have chosen to put ourselves under the rule of Christ. So even in that particular thing, it's a picture of Jesus. Almost everything in the first five books of the Bible is a picture of Jesus. And we talked about that. Each of the sacrifices is a picture of Jesus and how he fulfilled it or how he was the sacrifice. The tabernacle is just one big picture of Jesus and redemption. Joseph is a picture of Jesus. Um, Abraham is a picture of the father with and Isaac being the picture of Jesus and the, going to Mount Moriah for the sacrifice. He is the the God who walks with Adam and Eve in the, gar in the garden before their fall. He is the one who's the sacrificed lamb that brings them covering. All through the scriptures we see pictures of Jesus. He is the rock that the water flows in. He is the pillar of, the, of cloud and fire that leads them by day and by night. All through the scriptures we see Jesus as the picture being brought out in a very strong way. And that's why I love studying the, the, the Old Testament because I just look and here's Jesus, here's Jesus, here's Jesus, here's Jesus. He's everywhere. Uh, he was the brazen serpent put up on a post that when people would look at him, they would be healed from the snake bites. You know, it was a picture of looking to Jesus for that victory and, and healing on, when things go wrong. 
all these different stories that we have been reading and looking at, Jesus is pictured. In this book, it talks about that's why it talks about Isaac being the chiefest. Um, Isaac being one of the chiefest uh, types of Christ. Mm-hmm. He was the type of Christ. He was the promise. He was a child of promise. He is the fulfilling of the, the promise. He's, he was the child of promise. He's the first child that was born during that period of time of the covenant with the, with the circumcision. He is taken up on the, onto the mountain to be, sac- you know, to be sacrificed. He is brought back down in three days later, alive, brought back alive when he was expected to be dead. He is, there's not a whole lot about Isaac you know, that's out, that he does. He has the relationship between Abraham and Isaac, and there's the relationship between Isaac and Esau and, and Jacob. But Isaac himself is kind of a minor character of the three patriarchs. He has things acted upon him, but that even that is the picture of Jesus. He came to do the will of the Father and not be doing what he wanted to do. And then he gives birth to the church, and the Holy Spirit comes and is the comforter, but he's the sacrifice from the Father. Isaac is very much a picture of Jesus, even though there's, he is one who mostly things happen to. And that's pretty much what Jesus really was when you think about this. He came to do the will of the Father, and he even said, I don't do anything of my own will. I do only what the Father tells me to do. And then he leaves and he goes, you just need me to leave so the Holy Spirit can come, and he gives birth to the church, and the Holy Spirit's ministering to the church. Now, doesn't belittle his, his place at all. I mean, he was, he was submitted to the Father even to death, and without him we would not have salvation. So I don't want to belittle him, but he did come as the servant. He didn't come to lift himself up. But yet we're told if Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me because of what he does for our salvation. And again, it's him being lifted up on that cross that draws people to him and for forgiveness of sin and then the Holy Spirit comes in and does the work of sanctifying and making us the children of God in a strong way. So it's a very powerful. We look at the Old Testament. Now when I get somebody who's newly saved I like to see them spend a lot of time in the New Testament because you've got to understand what you believe. But you never fully understand the New Testament until you really start to understand the Old Testament. It's not saying the New Testament is worthless. It's very valuable. But there's a lot that we don't understand. When Paul talks about the tabernacle, that we are the tabernacle of God, he's thinking about the tabernacle that was, that was built in the wilderness with all the brass and the silver and the gold and the, and the purple and the scarlet and, the, and all the sacrifices that go in it and, and the five coverings that cover it that have the picture of sin to perfection as you walk through it. You know, all the different pictures that we talked at length over many months ago or years ago when we were t- you know, in Exodus going through the tabernacle. And it's a beautiful picture. And when you understand that picture and you hear Paul say, we're the tabernacle of God. And you understand the picture of the tabernacle. And you understand the redemption and the, and the, and the judgment that the tabernacle represents. And you go, okay, yes, yes, that's who I am. I have been judged. But Jesus, through his redemption, took the punishment for it. And now he's made me royalty. And he's made me perfect in the white robes that he gives to me because of the blood covering the sin. 
all seen as you go into the tabernacle where you see the the man the picture of man and then you see the black covering of it of sin and then you see the red covering of the blood then you see the white covering of perfection and then you go back to man and god joined together in its in its perfection all as you walk through the tabernacle's entrance that most people never saw it because the priests are the ones that walk through that but we see all of that. We see the brass that touches the ground, which is the sign of judgment, ground representing humanity and flesh, with judgment standing on that. But at the top of it is crowned with silver redemption because God looks down upon the redemption that Christ paid for so that he does not see the judgment and, and the flesh of human. All the pictures that we, we've gone through, and if you want to review, review them, go back and check the Exodus series out because we're not going to go through another six or seven months of redoing that at this point. <laughs> but there's all of this picture of Christ in all of this. And he's saying, you're going to go. You're going to walk with them. And God is not giving up on you. And he says, I've, I've written this law. And it says, on the year of release in the Feast of the Temple, when all of Israel has come together, that's one of the feasts that all the males of Israel were commanded to meet together on. And we look at this and it says, you shall read the law before all Israel in their hearing. They spent an entire day listening to somebody read the first five books of the Bible. Yeah. We can't even picture that. We can't even get people to sit still and, and listen for a short sermon sometimes. Mm -hmm. And here he says, you're going to listen to the law from the beginning of the end. Ezra and Nehemiah, when they rebuilt this, the Jerusalem, their celebration was that they built, they found the law of the God in, in the rubble of the, of the tabernacle, of the temple. They built the, the pulpit and they read the Bible from morning until noon. They read the entire Pentateuch. And the people stood for the entire reading of the Pentateuch from the morning till the time they got done. And then they began to teach. Okay. They spent three to four hours reading, and then they decided they were going to teach. You want to talk about a great service? To me, that would be a fantastic service. I've always wanted to be in services that just keep going. I've never been someplace where I have had somebody want to be taught more than I'm willing, willing to teach. It usually has to stop because time runs out. You hear the missionaries go overseas and they go on for hours and hours and stuff. My dad talked about that. He went over to one of the Balkan states uh, after, after the wall fell. They got there early evening. They, they taught until midnight. And, they're going, and they go, guys, we got to go sleep. They go, no, no, keep going, keep going. They go, no, we'll come back in the morning. Cause they were, and if you knew my dad, you'd know that this was an amazing thing for him to say, I can't go any longer. And then they got up the next day and went from morning till close to midnight again. And the people still didn't want to not hear the teaching, you know, which is very sad when you think about here in America, we've got people in churches, even good churches, that if you go more than an hour, hour and a half on a message, they're like, okay, uh, when's this long-winded uh, pastor gonna stop uh, teaching? You know, they, they appreciate it, you know, possibly, but they're still ready to go. And these people in these countries are so hungry for the word of God. You go to these African nations, you go to, many of these Asian nations where the word of God is so hard to come by and they just want everything you can, everything you give. And you know, and if you're teaching, it's a wonderful thing when people want 
that they pull so much out of you that it's an amazing time to teach to somebody like that. I've had that one time, not for hours like that, but one time where people were just really hungry. And it was just like pulling, give us more, give us more. And it was a wonderful experience to go through. And I would love to have that happen. You know, no, Pastor, you can't stop. Keep going. You know, we're not done yet. You know, we're not, you're, you're not done yet. You haven't finished the whole Bible yet. <laughs> but here we see the commandment was that we're going to take the word and then we're going to read it. On the seven, every seven years, they were going to read the whole thing from beginning to end as far as the Pentateuch was concerned. A long reading to read five books of the Bible in one sitting. And that's what they were told to do. And it says, gather you people together, men and women and children, and the strangers that are within your gate, that they may hear and that they may learn and fear the Lord your God and observe to do all the words of the law. One thing you'll have noticed as we've gone through this, over and over and over again, God has said, all of these rules apply to the Gentiles, the strangers in your land. It all belongs to them as well. The Jews never practiced giving the word of God to the Gentiles. They separated the Gentiles out always. They were not allowed to come into the tabernacle and sacrifice, even though God says that these are the rules for, for you and the strangers in your land, that they can come and sacrifice. God told them over and over again, if the, if the strangers in your land want to worship me, they are welcome. And yet the Jews make up all kinds of all kinds of walls and, and rules against Gentiles coming in and worship. It was okay to become a, to stop being a Gentile and become a proselyte, become a Jew, and basically a second-class Jew because you were not born a Jew, so you were a second-class Jew. You chosen you chose Judaism, but you weren't really a good Jew because you weren't born that way. But as soon as you proselyte, then you could come in and worship and, and sacrifice. So they, in their mind, they go, yeah, we'll, we'll accept any Gentile as long as they become a Jew. God never said that in the scriptures. He says, if they want to worship and they do it the right way, they're able to come in and worship. And as a matter of fact, get them all together and let them listen to the word of God. Let these strangers hear the word of God so that they can be affected. Huh? Oh, of course they'd have to teach them because they wouldn't have known how to, how to do this. They would have had some, some form of teaching. And for the Jews, they, that their, their way of teaching was to make them become Jews. <laughs> you know, get circumcised, be baptized, and become a Jew. Then when you've learned enough, we'll let you, sacri you know, offer your sacrifices. I have a question. The Pentateuch, is that the Torah? The Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. Penta is five. The Torah is the law, which is just another name for the Pentateuch and the law. And when you read about the law and the prophets in the New Testament, the law is the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets are everything else. The history and everything else, not just what we would call the prophets. We break it up in the Pentateuch or the law, history, poetry, prophets. The Jews break it up in the law and everything else, <laughs> which is the prophets. Uh, they do recognize that Kings, you know, Samuel through Chronicles, which is all one, one book in the Jewish Bible, are history. But even then, the prophets operate within those, so they are books of prophecy. Uh, judges has books have prophets in them. So we see the Jews break it up in the law and prophets. So 
when you read that term, that's what they're referring to, the Pentateuch and the rest of the Bible. It says, And their children which have not known anything may hear and learn of the, to fear the Lord your God as long as they live in the land whether you go over to the Jordan to possess it. And I kind of, I underline this. And their children which have not known anything may hear. How wise do we in our day have people thinking they are and they know nothing about God and God would say they don't know anything. They don't know what's important. The fear of the God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord leads to wisdom. Over and over in the scriptures we're told that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, is the beginning of understanding. And when man tries to come up with his own imaginations, we get things like, evolution. I get things like there's no absolute morality, there's no absolute truth. We get all the garbage that's being taught. We get racism out of, out of not knowing God and fearing God because when you know God you cannot be a racist because you go back to everybody comes from Adam and Eve and Noah. We all are of the same family. There is no such thing as races in this world and when the Bible talks about races and nationalities they're talking about nationalities. They're not talking about black, white, red, yellow, orange, purple, whatever other colors you might come up with. Racism in the Bible is not compatible. Paul said that we are all of one blood. We are all humans. And when you run, now that we know DNA, we know for a fact that we are all one simple family. We know that we have the same family. We know that there's the mitochondria that goes all the way back to the one woman and there's a cell in the chromosomes that go back all the way to one man so we know that Adam and Eve were the original parents of every single human being out there because the DNA and the cell structure tells us so and it's an amazing thing and the evolutionists know it too but they just think it's the goes back to the first pair of monkey human hybrids you know they have no problem with it going back to one because it would have us coming from one so they really don't have a problem with it but in, in the same time if you're evolutionist why wouldn't there be more than one if it could happen once it should be able to happen many times it's just another way they can deny deny Jesus and we see over and over what the foolishness of man's wisdom the foolishness that people say and when you see what God says is true and you understand it, it's so funny to listen to smart people talk. And they say really dumb things sometimes, you know, as they circular, do circular logic. And, you know, and we look at this, you know, how do they date the rocks of this world? They date the rocks by the fossils that they're in it. And how do they date the fossils? By what rock they're in. You know, it makes no sense because you're dating one with the other and neither one of them proves the other. They call it the mitochondria Eve. I'll look it up for you. It's MIT. MIT. And I think A. Mitochondria is the is the energy cell within uh, the energy nucleus of the cell. That's the mitochondria. And it gets its gene. It gets a gene that comes from the woman from woman to woman to woman to woman, all the way back to the first woman. And there's a chromosome that men have that it goes back. Uh, that 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 is in us that goes back to the man. So, uh, but the first one there is for women and then... Uh, well, no, it's, it, in all of us, it just comes from the woman. 
it comes from the mother. That particular gene comes from the mother. And the chromosome that they, there's a chromosome that comes from the male. And it goes all the way back. We all have the same, same marker in our, in our bodies. It's not a proof of creation, but it's a definite strength of creation showing that there was one. But the whole point I'm making on it is it doesn't matter about racism because racism is unbiblical. It is an unbiblical place. Now, it has been used for years. The Bible has tried to have been used for years for supporting it. But God teaches that we are one flesh. We come from one mother and father all the way back and have a mother and father common in Noah and his wife. So we have two common ancestors that we know that every single one of us have. So racism is a really horrendous crime against humanity to say, well, because you're such and such, you're, you're sub, subspecies. No, they're exactly the same as everybody else. You know, they're, they're exactly the same. There's no subspecies in the human race because we're all within three or four percent different difference on the millions of pieces of DNA. And when we say three or four pieces on millions, it's not a very big, big difference. There's all kinds of people, the nationalities that God says that he cursed. But he never cursed races. No, not racism. It was nationality against nationality. And usually the nationalities that problems with the nationalities, as we're going to see here, he says, destroy the, you know, you'd go ahead and destroy the Amorites. Why? Because they were ungodly. They were worshiping everything to do with the, the other gods and their perversions were so strong and we've covered this before why did God tell the children of Israel to kill every single person in the promised land because it had been for 430 years they had been unrepentant and their sin was so bad that they had literally polluted everything within the land their sexual crimes were so bad that they had polluted the animals through all of their bestiality okay for 430 years, they had gone to this, these places. In their languages, there was no, no sub-words for sex. It was sex with anything, and any one was, was just the same word. Whereas we have sex, and then we have all kinds of aberrations of sex, which we're losing, as you, if you're aware of it, what's going on in our world today, we're losing the aberration, ab aberrations for sex and be saying they're normal and okay. And it's pretty amazing, as soon as the Supreme Court said that they couldn't make rules, that rules against homosexuals were unconstitutional, all of a sudden you had everybody coming out of the woodwork, as was predicted, you know, well, we want to have multiple wives, we want to, have, we want to be able to marry our dogs, we want to marry our, our you know, animals, we want to be able to have sex with children. Every perversion came out of the closet and said, if that's okay, then why what is your reason for us not being okay? And you're seeing more and more polygamists coming out of the closet and saying, hey, I've been a polygamist. I've got more than one wife. And what are you going to do about it? Because if one is okay, once you start breaking down God's laws and saying that there's no standard to say anything else that this is bad, then nothing can be declared bad. And this is the problem with the whole idea that there is no absolute truth. If there's no absolute truth, then anything is okay if you're strong enough to make it happen. Period. Hitler was a great example of that. 
He pulled evolution to its extreme point of view. And he goes, the Aryan race is the pure one. We're going to get rid of everybody else. And he felt that he was strong enough to do it. And he came close to pulling it off. Okay, because he was the ultimate. If, it's, if evolution is true and, and there is a better, better human out there, we're going to make sure that we get rid of all subhumans. Racism has its roots in Satan's world. Because if he can divide the people and, and create problems with people, then he can keep us from following God. And we as Christians need to really be aware, racism is not biblical. It is not allowed. You know, I hate it when I hear people go, well, this person is such and such. You know, they're, they're this, they're that. What difference does it make? They're a person that needs Christ. Black, yellow, white, purple, orange, pink, whatever color they might be, it does not matter. They need Christ. And you know the, the amount of melanoma in their skin does not matter. And that's the color, coloration of the skin. Yeah, that's the only difference between the races. How much color is in their skin natural? And it's kind of interesting when, when uh, you say that, you know, well, these people are black. Well, I've never seen a black person myself. I've never seen anybody who is black. Uh, you hold this black uh, box next to them, and they don't look at all like this box. Yeah, I was just that was the next point. Yeah, yeah. We we hold this white piece of paper next to me, and I'm not white, uh, and I've never seen a white person. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but even if you have an albino who is somebody who has no pigmentation to speak of, they're still not white. They're more of a pink. So. You know, we've got to be very careful in our mindset and say we've got to get away from these racist attitudes. we get away from this idea that somebody is lesser just because of what they are. And because there is no, yes, there are certain nationalities that have been cursed. God curses certain nationalities because of their sinful lifestyle. And he says they're going to be judged. America is very soon to be judged for our sinful lifestyle. If we don't repent and turn, God will will judge our nation because of the degree of sin that we're getting into. Greece and Rome were both judged because of the amount of sin that they got into. And usually what ends up happening with all these different nationalities is they start just disobeying God. In all the different rules, they just start, they're generally disobeying God. It almost always gets into sexual crimes as it goes on. And that is what brings a nation down, is when anything goes sexually, it'll bring the nation down. Greece was like that. Rome was like that. Homosexuality, bestiality was rampant in both those countries before they fell. Uh, group orgies was rampant. Worship involving orgies was rampant in those countries. You know, we think that we have sex out in the open and, and flaunted in front of us. It is nothing compared to what, we're finding, what we find in the... Greek and Roman cities. It was a different type than it is today, but it was more rampant, more open, more out in the in front of people's faces than it is in our country. Now our country is catching up and the world's catching up and it will be just as bad in a, in a relatively short time and that is when the end comes and judgment comes. 
Now, is there another country to take over? I don't know. It may be literally the end. God says, okay, it's time for me to take my church out and, into, and go into the last seven years. And I think we're at that point. I would like to maybe think that I'm wrong, but at the same time, I'd like to be like I'm right. I'd like to be raptured out of here and not have to see my kids and grandkids go through the horrors that are coming. But if that's what God wants, he'll give them the strength to get through it. And we'll see what happens from all of this stuff that's going on. But God has a plan. His word was to be preached even to the strangers. He says, I want them to hear. I want them to come to us. What was Jesus' last command to us? Go and preach the gospel. Make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And so often we sit back and say, okay, we'll let others do that. We'll let the world go to hell. Well, somebody will go talk to him, maybe. But not me, God. I'm, I, I'm not going to do it. We need to be very careful about how we're going to go on through this. And we're going to stop here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you that you give us great blessing, honor. Lord, give us strong courageousness and and strength to do what you would ask us to do, that we will get bold in our testimonies, we will get bold in, in serving you, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.